Jersey is the world. Hi everybody, Chris Gethard here. Welcome to another episode of New Jersey is the world. Thanks to everybody who supports the show, who's been listening, who's been spreading word, who leaves reviews, who who buys a t-shirt at belowthecollar.com slash Chris Gethard, who signs up for the Patreon at patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. We just put out our deep dive last week about Seaside Park. We explored Seaside Park from the mob figures who live there to the many disasters that have happened to the best bars to get hit on by a swinger couple. We always have fun over there at the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. This episode is near and dear to my heart. I've been working to make this one happen for a long time. I interview veteran comedian, legendary comedian Rich Voss. And we talk a lot. Rich was born in Plainfield or grew up in Plainfield. Don't know if he was born there. Grew up there. Still lives in Jersey today, along with his wife, Bonnie McFarlane, who's also just one of the funniest people. And right away, I want to say, if you're a comedy fan, you might be saying to yourself, Chris Gethard and Rich Voss, weird pair. I'm telling you, man, Voss is the best. Every time we get to catch up, it's usually at the Comedy Cellar if we're over there doing shows. And I have learned, I love picking his brain. He's got war stories. He's seen and done everything in comedy. And people might go, but Voss is from that like tough crowd with Colin Quinn era. He was real big in an ONA in its prime. And you're Gethard. You're the sensitive guy. Here's the thing. Despite what you might hear, comedians who get out there and hustle and work and do their own thing, there's generally a level of respect. So I know there's been a couple comedians over the past few years, and I've taken the high road. I stay out of it. There's been some people who take pot shots at me for being this emo guy. I'm telling you, it, that's... Anybody who you've heard say that, they're insecure about something because all of the people who get out there and work hard, we just respect each other. And me and Rich Voss have hit it off. I love hearing his stories about road shows and gigs from back in the day and his favorites from over the years. But being that he's from Jersey, he's also got a ton of stories about what the comedy scene was like in Jersey when he was coming up. And so much of this conversation, as you'll hear, started because I have an obsession with this comedy room that used to exist in East Orange. It was called the Peppermint Lounge. And the stories about this place are completely insane. And I knew that he was a part of it. And I got to finally pick his brain in depth about that. He told me about places all over the state that he played back in the day. Names that maybe have been forgotten to time, by and large, but that he remembers about... Jersey and comedy and the comedy that has come out of this place. There's also, to be fair, a million tangents. And if you're here purely for Jersey content, I bet you might um, you, you might skip around a little bit. If you are someone who wants to hear about comedy war stories, buckle up because it's just about the best thing you're going to hear. I mean, from from bribing your way onto shows by providing cocaine to performing at the Apollo with no material prepared. It's just great, great stories. And on top of that, stories of rooms in Bernardsville and Denville and, and East Orange and all these places that you don't expect to have been really big in the history of Northeastern comedy. They're right here. So I got to thank Rich for taking the time. I hope I get to uh, catch up with him soon off mic on mic again if he'll if he's willing to slum it and do it again and i really hope you enjoy this look into new jersey's comedy past and i also have to say i've always represented as a new jersey comedian 
And since I moved back, I've been doing more and more Jersey shows. I just did a great show, the Brick City Comedy Review in Newark. It's once a month. Look it up. There's so many great comedians. Justin, who runs that show, is great. Franco Danger, Kate Nichols, Ali May, Danny Braff, Nick Fierro, Devin, Devin Hall, and his, his buddies Colin and Keegan. There's, there's so many great comedians I've been seeing. Alex Nicholas, who I, I, I only really said hello to at a show we did together in Asbury Park. I think he's great. I don't even think he knows. I think he's great. Point being, there's Jersey people out here, and there's something brewing. And I got a feeling that if Jersey starts supporting these homegrown comedians, going to be a wave of successful people over the next couple of years because there's people out here doing really interesting stuff with a really good perspective and the future of new jersey comedy is bright as well with that in mind let's explore new jersey's comedy past with the living legend himself rich voss hi everybody chris gathered here welcome to new jersey is the world as you know this podcast celebrates the culture, the ridiculousness, the history of my favorite place in the world, my home state of New Jersey. And this episode is a very special one to me. I've been trying to make this interview happen for a while. I'm going to talk with a, a fellow comedian and someone who I admire greatly. It's the the legendary Rich Voss. And the last thing, no comedian wants to be introduced as legendary because it means, you know, you can, I know when I get introduced, oh, alt legend, I go, oh, that just means I'm getting older. But yeah. <laughs> we are, I'm talking with Rich today about a lot of the legendary spots of Jersey comedy. Um, and I want to say at top, people might be listening and they might go, oh, this is a funny match because Rich, you know, a lot of people think of you, they think the whole tough crowd side of things, ONA, they think of me as this softer alt guy. But one thing that I can say about comedy that I love is that when people do it for long enough, you wind up sitting at tables together, eating meals together, and you very quickly start to learn who are the people who just want to get in there, work hard, do their thing. If their thing's different than yours, doesn't matter. If you're out there making people laugh, paying your rent, God bless you. And you and I, particularly at the Comedy Cellar, I've been able to, uh, first of all, do a ton of bits, pick your brain about old Jersey stories, and I've 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 tell this to all my comedian friends. I'm like, there's nobody more fun to sit and break bread with. If you're in the mood to share some more stories, nobody more fun than Rich Voss. And I'm so psyched you're here doing it on the podcast. Uh, thanks. It's good to be here. Uh, I totally uh, I I respect you. I love sitting and talking with you. There's certain people you like. You sit and talk with. You're like, uh, but I don't know. We could talk for hours. Uh, you know, it's so weird when they say alternative comedy or like where my favorite comics probably, I mean, I love comedy from since I was a little kid dealing with my parents' divorce and coming home from school and fourth grade and putting on Von Meter album who did impressions of the Kennedys. <clears throat> and I was every day come home, listen and laugh. And I loved it. And then realized later it was covering the pain of my parents' divorce. Just but my, you know, my favorite comedy, you know, Eddie Pepitone, Maria Banford, Todd Glass, you know, and they would be considered alternative comics. You know, I met my wife, Bonnie, when we met, was doing more alternative rooms and then, then uh, what do you call, you know, mainstream rooms. You know, uh, I used to do, uh, which I loved at times, uh, I think it was called M-Bar down in 
off of Houston Street. And to me, uh, a quick funny story, I was doing a gig in L.A. and Bonnie was there. It was an alternative room. And she never saw me bomb. You know, I and I start off, it was slow. It looked like things could go really bad. And she's on the phone calling a friend going, I, I think he's going to bomb. I think he's, I see him. I think he's going to bomb. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I pulled it out. I pulled it out and had a good set. And uh, she was like, ah, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a tough time one night in Brooklyn in some room downstairs. It kind of looked like a diner or something. This was maybe six years ago. But comedy, comedy, I love all kinds of comics, you know. I mean, my favorite comics are ones, I, I don't know, that, that are more from here than here. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Jersey, I remember uh, the stories of comedy in Jersey. I mean, starting here, uh, you know, uh, open mics and we used to all hang. I, I remember when I first started hanging out with the Jersey comics here, Florentine and Norton, and this girl, Nancy Ryan. And we would go to uh, this one place, the laughing bean. And it was an open mic and do comedy. I think it was in red bank area. And I would go to open my, I, I, one comic, I can talk for hours. So ask me anything, like, tell me when not to shut my shit. No, I've learned with you. What I do is I shut up and I let the gold come because invariably oh. some stories coming down the pike that I'm just going to sit there and shake my head. I love it. We, you know, we, I would do, I would try to get on stage anywhere. I just wanted to do comedy. You know, I remember the first times I went on, it was horrific. I tried, I tried to do props. Uh, you know, I had props and <clears throat> uh, so we would do the, I would drive anywhere. I remember me and this comic drove to Connecticut for $25 a piece. <laughs> and we did the show and the guy goes, hands us $15. We go, it's supposed to be 20. No, he hands us $10 each. We go, it's supposed to be 25. He goes, you had the salad bar. I go, $15 for a salad bar? <laughs> <laughs> there was one comic I worked for. Uh, just he booked these clubs. So he was kicked out of his house for some reason. So he was staying at this hotel. He, he booked the room in the hotel, the ballroom, the comedy room, whatever. So he didn't have my money on Saturday. So all of his belongings that were worth anything he had in his hotel room. So I took his TV and I remember coming home and my wife, uh, Kelly, my first wife, I walk in with a TV. She goes, what are you working for a microwave next week? I go, look, I had to take something. I'm not even empty handed. Uh, so in the beginning, you know, it built and then, you know, I was always partying, doing drugs, whatever. Then I uh, found free base and I found comics that would do free base with me. Uh, so for maybe two or two years or three, and probably my first couple of years, 
you know, I was a free bass, you know, they say crack, but free bass sounds more uh, prestigious. Yeah, crack. classy. Classing, classy. Classy. Class it up and say free bass. Yeah, free bass. You know, crack. What am I? Oh. <laughs> I remember one time after a gig, me and this comic, he was a legendary comic, Bob Woods, who passed away on stage, matter of fact. Well, he didn't die. Something happened to his stomach and from Long Island. And we, uh, after the show, we went back from Jersey to New York. We were doing, there were so many one-nighters in Jersey. So many. Freddy's we talked about. Uh, BJ Packies, Palazzo's. This uh, married couple booked all these one-nighters. Jerry Stanley, Gary Grant. Yeah. So uh, me and Bob... We'll go left to gig go let's go to new york and so i i went up to harlem spanish harlem got us our f- crack free base <laughs> and we're going to go back to jersey now over this guy's house don and and smoke so this cab driver we get in the cab and we're in the back seat and we're smoking and the cab driver's like he doesn't know he's got you got to be careful out here in these streets with this crack they'll kill you out here and we're smoking it in his back seat. Next thing you know, he sees us, comes back to the house we're going to. He's leaving. We're all leaving the next morning. He spent all his money on coke. Wow. We smoked. And, uh, you know, so in the beginning, and then I started, I got clean, went to rehab. You know, I, I, got a, I could do a whole podcast on war stories of drugs but that's not what this is about so i got clean and when i was in rehab they said you know you can't do comedy for a year the day i got out of rehab i did comedy at night at a one-nighter the wooden nickel uh, and you know i haven't picked up a drug in 36 years or a drink uh because i wanted to get clean uh so then i would do the one-nighters and one-nighters i, I ended up getting married had kids and then I started doing the urban rooms too. Uh, this, this is, I'm going to jump in here because this is the impetus for this whole thing is that when you say urban room, that in comedy lingo, an urban room is a room where all, you know, most, if not all of the comics are going to be black. It's called an and urban no, room. And the audience too. Audience too, generally. Um, and there's a legendary room that I have long thought there should be a documentary about this place because there's stories about a place called the Peppermint Lounge in East Orange, New Jersey. And I've come to learn as a comedian, this was the spot. It was, it was a notoriously hard room. Crowd would make a game out of punishing people if they didn't do well. They, the, window of time they'd give you to grab them was minuscule hard room i've heard all sorts of stories people getting not just booed off stage but being pelted with there uh, someone uh, one of the seller comics one of the black comics told me he once witnessed a night where a guy was bombing and a man who was eating chicken wings stood up and started throwing bones at him yelling get the fuck off the stage pelting him with chicken wings no, like, it was throwing them nice and easy at him oh <laughs> even more degrading <laughs> Okay, let me. Well, let me, I want to say two things about it, just so yeah. people understand the context and and why you have an authority to speak. This is one. 
I've been told that apparently if you were close to getting booked on Death Comedy Jam, which was a huge show, for anybody who remembers it, this could launch careers, especially for young black comics. You'd have to do the Peppermint Lounge first uh, to make sure you had what it takes. And when you talk to black comics in New York who were part of the scene and who did the Mint, they will tell you very often, the one white comic who always crushed there was Rich Voss. And I've always wanted to pick your brain more about this because that sounds like a hard room that was culturally bit, built to, I, I can't imagine, you must have walked onto that stage expecting the worst. And if, by all accounts, you were, it was you, I hear you and DC Benny's name come up, that you were the white guys who figured out how to work that room. Well, uh, you know, going back, it started first at a room in Newark called Terminal B. Just a long, uh, a long room, packed like Tuesday nights. The DJ Bob Summers, Sumners, ended up booking Dev Jam and producing, but he was the DJ. So I mean, Terminal D, like next to the stage, they had that bell that that they had it. Oh, Jesus! So I mean, this place was tough. I remember hosting a show one night and this black comic goes on and he's bombing. It's brutal. And he, he says to the audience, I did a white club the other night and they were nicer to me than you people and walked off. Right. And I was the host. So I walked on and I go, uh, I was at that white club and I didn't like him there either. Right. So oh, <laughs> I mean, it was whatever. The crowd loved that kind of shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So then that move room from Terminal D went to Club 88 in East Orange, which was tough. Then when that closed, that's when the Peppermint opened. Now the Peppermint Lounge, people <laughs> left there knowing they were going to get job applications the next day. <laughs> right. Like you would go, First of all, they you know they they go and this happened in most urban rooms, black rooms or whatever. You know the show's at nine. You get there and it doesn't start till eleven thirty. So now you got two and a half hours to walk around and have a fucking anxiety attack. You know, so and you would and the peppermint would be four hundred people maybe just packed and every not every but so many celebrities from New Jersey would be like Queen Latifah would go naughty by nature. Those guys from the band rap band, uh, Shannon Briggs, who was a world champion boxer. He fought, uh, I think he fought Tyson. I mean, Shannon Briggs, big guy, the nicest, sweetest guy too. He would come up to you and talk before, after the show. And you would go on and like, like people were sitting in the front row like this, you know, like, Oh shit. You know, uh, and, and, and like you said, you had probably maybe 45 seconds <laughs> of fun to be funny. <laughs> I don't know what, it, but if that audience loved you, that audience, I'm saying that audience, if, and in most places, clubs, it, it's a big diff. That, I'm, that's why I love a mixed audience. I like everybody, you know, I don't, but, uh, if a black audience likes you, they love you. And you could say things, you know, they, 
they're not as uptight as white people. White people are like, oh my God, you know, I was doing a, a, a black room and I, if you call it black room nowadays, I don't know what the fuck to say, an urban room, or whatever. And that's what, people say white room black room they go this is in comedy lingo this is like accepted language and no one would be offended yeah this is just a shorthand that comedians use for sure you know i was doing a room in new york and i don't know what i did and this is mean now and some girl started booing me she's booing she had to be 500 pounds and i'm like boo you should be mooing not booing and the crowd, uh, yeah, you know, they love. If you did that in a white room, they would just, I mean, they would be blogging by the end of the show. They'd be on their phones. Do you hear yes. what said? He won't shame the person, right? Well, she started. So, anyhow, the peppermint, I mean, I saw guys, it just, it, it, I mean, rattled, rattled. And I would always get there early and have anxiety and, you had to, right from the beginning, take control. You know, I don't care if you went on and beat the guy down in the front row or do it. Just you couldn't show any fear, any fear, uh, and white or black. Because, I, black, you know, they didn't give a shit. White comics, I guess maybe you got an extra 10 seconds because you were white. I did. I I remember. I did that room seven times, and six out of seven, uh, and I closed some of those shows. You know, I had to go last. Yeah. One show that was tough. Uh, Bill Bellamy used to host there. Uh, he was the host when he wasn't on the road. And when I first saw Bill Bellamy at a club, I go, "This guy's going to be a star." He used to come on stage in a suit good looking, you know, he just, he had, he had it, you know what I mean? He had it. And, uh, I, I even said, I go, this guy's going to be, and he did, he did very well, Bill Bellamy. I mean, and, uh, his manager time was smart. Here's a story. He might, I don't know if he knows it, but I know it. he was working rascals, which was in uh, West Orange in my hometown. Yeah, and Bill could work either club. And he was hosting or something, and he was getting $50. His manager went to the manager of Rascals and gave the manager another 50 and said, give him 100 to make him feel. The manager was smart. Right. But, you know, he was new, and for him to get 100 instead of 50 you know, builds up his self-esteem or his, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, his manager was smart. So anyhow, so Bill used to host the Peppermint. They loved him and they showed up because he was really good. He was a good host, funny. And when he wasn't there, uh, this other comic talent would host. Uh, the nicest guy, the f- very funny, ended up uh, uh being a radio DJ on one of the stations, just a major, just a, a headliner amongst uh, the urban circuit. Very nice, very funny. So when Bellamy wasn't there, talent usually hosted. Well, one night, Bellamy was hosting and talent was on the show. So talent goes on 
And I don't know why they had me fucking closing. So talent goes on, does his set, kills. Bellamy comes on. They're both up there together. And now they're doing a snap contest against each other. Like, you know. Yeah. You know, uh, trashing each other, snapping on each other, killing. And now I got to go up and close after this. Well, that was an ugly night. That night could have drove me back to smoking. Uh, and, and like I said, I did the room seven times and six out of seven were, were fun. I didn't close every show. I don't think, you know, and you didn't want to close. You wanted to get up do fucking 10 minutes, get a big laugh and go, good night. Thank you. Then you walk off, get your hundred. It probably paid a hundred dollars. You know, the place was mobbed 400 fucking people. You get a hundred bucks and, and, and leave. I, sometimes I would hang out and watch the show and after the show and, you know, just mingle with the people. And it was, look, you went, you had an audition there for Deb Jam, you know, and I can tell you how scary Deb Jam was for me. Uh, I was the first, Deb Jam was the bigger, biggest show on HBO for five years. The yeah. biggest, uh, moneymaker, mostly viewed. They never had a white comic. So, you know, there was talk about putting a white comic on it. Uh, and I kind of knew it would be me if they did it. So I remember getting a call from, uh, she worked with Bob, Tina Graham, who was great. Booked rooms on her own, too. Just the sweetest, nicest. She goes, uh, they want you to do Def Jam. And it was the year they had all these different guest hosts. You know, usually Martin hosted it, then whoever after him. But this year, you know, they every episode, you know, one episode was Chris Rock, Chappelle, Jamie Foxx, uh, Martin, maybe one, whatever. They had all these, you know, Adele Gibbons or some more. Uh, so I, I'm going to do this show. Well, okay. They're taping in New York. Five nights, I think, you know. So you hear all the comics that are doing well, killing, you know, and you hear who's having a tough time just to, to, to talk around New York, you know, because they're filming there. So I went to a show one night to watch. And, you know, the warm-up, uh, Guy Tory was the warm-up. He would come out, get the crowd as any warm-up. He goes, this is not the Apollo. There's no booing. This is HBO. We don't boo here. All right. This is, <laughs> this is not the Apollo, which I did three times. But, and this sounds like all ego, like, oh, I did this, I did that. It's just part of the shit I did. Uh, he said, no booing here. So I'm in, the, I'm watching, and this comic walks out. First of all, he's dressed in some like gold suit or whatever. Already, they don't like him. He has like sneakers on, probably not even Nikes, probably like Keds or something. <laughs> and, you know, already, like, who's this fucking idiot? You know, and he walks out. His opening line goes, first of all, I want to say I'm not from New York. I'm from Canada. Well, <laughs> he is bombing so bad. 
And when a black audience, when, and I do this on stage once in a while, when a black audience can't boo you, all you heard in the audience was, mm, 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 mm. It was like, <sighs> and it was brutal. So I'm at this taping. I'm going, oh, fuck. <sighs> now my nerves. I mean, this is five nights of comics throughout the country. The, the major comics hosting. Black comics are mad at me because I'm doing it and they're not. Some white comics are going, you better do well because you have to represent, you know, white people. So I'm on the last night, <laughs> the last show. I mean, everybody's already, you know, the last night, the last show, second to last. I'm almost closing the fucking week out. Comics that are still in town are there. Hosts that are still in town are there. Right? I thought I was going to have a fucking heart attack. I go there in my outfit. They say, Russell says, they want you to wear Fat Farm, his clothing. Right? <laughs> so now I got to fucking wear Fat Farm. and look like <laughs> you know, this little hood motherfucker. You know, it's like this baggy pants. You know, I mean, baggy pants for me. You had to wear baggy pants. You couldn't wear tight jeans, not, not to a black club or taping. So I had fat farm bag. And I look back at what I did. It killed. I killed. I did good. Uh, but, and I guess, because where I grew up, but, but I was pandering so much. Like if I did now, I just sit on a, a, a chair and talk, you know, I'm pan. I, I, you know, I, I pandered. And, but this is 20 some years ago. And I'm like, ugh, what a fucking sellout I am. Like, <laughs> <laughs> douchebag pandering, fucking, hey, hey, yo, you know, all that shit. Uh, it went well. And I got off and, you know, whatever. I think Norton came to watch. Norton and another comic came to watch me. They were up in the stands. So it was, one of the most, it was the second most nerve wracking thing I ever did in my career. But you had to audition at the Peppermint to do Def Jam. And every comic wanted, I mean, Def Jam, like you said, I mean, that launched careers. Fucking Bernie Mac's second appearance on Def Jam, you know, where he said, You, you motherfuckers don't scare me. Did you ever see it? Oh, of course. Legendary, yeah. You know why he did that. Well, he, the act before him, I knew, I don't remember his name, was from D.C., Washington. And he was mainly doing white rooms. He did impressions, right? And he was on Def Jam, and he didn't have a great set. He bombed. And then Bernie Mac came out. You motherfuckers don't scare me. Hit it. That's what he was, he was yeah. you know, saying about the other guy. He was reacting to what had come before. Yeah, you don't scare me. I'm from Chicago. You know, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and the Peppermint, you know, comics <clears throat> that could have done great on Dev Jam, you know, had a tough time and didn't get it because of the Peppermint, you know, and because the room was so tough. It was, I mean, it was, it was so big and, and, and it was just, it was like, 
when you walked out of there after a good set, you're like, oh, thank God. You know what I mean? You're so relieved. Was it the toughest room in Jersey of its day? The toughest room in the country. Black yeah. room. The toughest white room was Betty's, Betty's Fireside in Denville. That one. In Denville, New Jersey? Yeah. What was so tough about that? See, this is something I've never heard of. Are you kidding? They call it the Thunderdome. Three comics go in, none come out. Uh, it was voted. It was voted the worst room in the country. Like uh, you stood behind the bar on the stage. I guess like where strippers would dance, and they just all stood at the bar, five back. You know, and animals. This guy Bob Woods, who I talked about, who yeah. I spoke free base dove off the stage onto some guy to not to fight him. He flew across the bar and grabbed a guy. And, you know, I mean, it was the work. They should have put chicken wire up. It was like doing comedy. I mean, these, like I was on stage at Betty's and some guys like, I'm going to fucking kill you when you go outside. I mean, biker, whatever. I, I stood behind the bar after I got up. I didn't leave. <laughs> I was too scared to leave. This is in Denville. Denville. Was Denville's called. such a nice town now. <laughs> yeah, well, they had one bar that wasn't called Betty. <laughs> it's a nice town. Hitler <laughs> lived in a nice neighborhood. <laughs> okay. Everybody always brings it back to Hitler. Uh, Indeed. Even Kanye. Uh, so Betty's was the, the worst. And Peppermint was probably the, t I mean, I did black rooms around the country. I didn't do, like, I did uh, club something in Miami, which was a tough room, very tough urban room, you know, gigantic. And, you know, and, and comedy back then during Dev Jam, these one was a big, big thing for the urban one. They didn't have it. They didn't have comedy clubs mm -hmm. like, like the mainstream white rooms. You know, white rooms were popping up all over the country back then. You know, uh, you had the, uh, you know, the, the the chain comedy clubs or, you know, there was one or two clubs in every fucking city, white club. Yeah. So that's why Def Jam, that's why Black Hot was so big in that tour. The uh, Kings of Comedy tour was so big. It was the second highest grossing tour at the time next to the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Uh, was because this was new. This was where, you know. Black people could go out on a date, take their uh, girlfriend or wife or go with their friends, something new. You and know. born out of necessity, born out of yes. club, clubs being built in a way that wasn't accepting. So building an alternative to it that took on a life of its own. And what I've always loved about talking with you, I remember talking to you, like asking you once at the cellar, like, so how did you come to even... Because I'll say on my end, in New York, I've performed everywhere except the uptown rooms. It's another synonym. Black room, urban room. New York, you might say uptown room. Noting yeah. shows in Harlem. That's like, and I've talked, it's funny, like, uh, I remember talking once with Mike Yard, who's great comic, hosts a lot of this, uh, nicest guy. And I remember saying to him, like, I feel like that's, that's the one scene that I haven't performed in. And I was like, I'd love to do it. And he's like, you should. I was like, I'll bomb, but I'll do, and he's like, no. Cause you have your own swagger. He's like, you don't have swagger, but 
they those audiences will respect your swagger. And I remember asking you, like, how'd you even break in? I remember you saying to me, just came down to where where were you gonna get paid that night? Who had a spot that you could get 10 bucks, 15 bucks for? Yeah. I'll go do it. Like, and you were saying before, and I want to get your back on this. You were saying before you did the Apollo a few times, and you said, like, it sounds like ego, you listing all these things you did. But I can say, having talked to you so much, it's not ego. It was survival for you. It was, you had to pay your bills, had to pay your rent. So where do you got to go? You got to go to some bumfuck place on the Jersey shore. I'll go there tonight. You need to go to East orange the next night. I'll go there. And it's, it's one of the reasons that I respect you. And a lot of the comics of your generation was you guys didn't have the luxury of there's this huge boom in comedy where we can pick and choose the types of rooms we play. You go, where where's the people who are going to help me pay my rent this month? I'll go there and I will figure it out. And that's a huge thing. And that's not a thing that all comics have to do now. You can kind of build a boutique experience for yourself these days. Well, yeah. I mean, we didn't have, obviously, back then, social media, which, you know, would have blown up comics yeah. even more back then. By now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it, rooms, uh, like I did the Apollo, Showtime at the Apollo. First of all, the theater is so fucking cool. Yeah. Like you walk in there, you're going, do you know who's been on this stage? I mean, I mean, legendary people, you know, prior fucking James Brown, uh, whoever. And, and me and Norton used to get in the car and we would talk comedy, driving, whatever. And we, we go, who would do well at the Apollo? And we go, do you think Brian Regan would do well at the Apollo? And we go, yeah, he'd probably kill it. And we would name white comics, you know, and our test was, would they do well at the Apollo? You know, uh, you know, uh, and just we were talking to Carl. We go, nah, they wouldn't. And yeah, you know. And I used to think, when I heard Janis Joplin singing, I would think in my head, her at the Apollo would fucking kill that room. Her voice and her—I mean, just the soul that came out of Janis Joplin. You know, I because the Apollo audience didn't was not—they weren't fucking around either. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, people got booed. You know. Uh, so I remember, well, I did first the Apollo comedy hour, which was not showtime at the Apollo, but it was the Apollo comedy hour and it went well. And then they asked me to do showtime at the Apollo. So yeah, of course. So I did showtime at the Apollo and I, I must've crushed cause they asked me to come back three weeks later. And I said, yes, like an asshole. Besides well, the material, you already did all your A material, right? Yeah, I did my, my A material that's going to work in an urban room <laughs> during the TV fucking taping. <laughs> and the second one didn't go well. I don't think they aired it because, you know, I, I, I go, this, this ain't going to go. I, I said things so I knew they wouldn't air it. So... But I did, I also did a lot of shows at the Apollo, like uh, 12-step conventions would have a show at the Apollo, like when a 12-step. Right, right, right. So I did a show there and I did it a couple, and 
this is an amazing theater. But I was doing, you know, I did BET like four times, you know, in Miami, Atlanta, whatever. So I was doing all the urban TV shows. And I then the last one I think I did was uh, first, I think it was Martin Lawrence, it was called First Amendment. It was on Stars or something. So I'm on stage and some lady in the back is heckling me, you know, and whatever. And, oh, I, I made a joke about Baltimore. It was being taped in D.C. Yeah. I made a joke about Baltimore. I don't know what bit it was I was doing about Baltimore. And the lady got up and go, she's, yeah. she goes, my son died at the train station in Baltimore. You know, in the middle of the team. I go, you sure he didn't jump in front of the train and get away from you? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so then it was like the audience, like they were kind of on her, her side. Like, <laughs> then she started saying whatever. I said, I said, shut up, you. I called her ashy bitch. I go, I'm getting thirsty talking to you. Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> and now the crowd loves me. Right? Right, right, right. And you look up in the balcony. And Dick Gregory is watching, you know. Oh, Jesus, like legend. And I saw him smile or laugh or whatever. I don't know. Uh, I pulled it out, but just the fact that I made Dick Gregory laugh. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I see him up there, you know, it's Dick Gregory. You know, it's like making Pryor laugh or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I did all, a lot of the urban TV shows, but then I kind of broke away because I did them all. And there wasn't, like, I remember calling a club uh, trying to get work, and I go, yeah, I did Def Jam. And the club's like, well, you don't use Def Jam acts. You know what I mean? It was yeah, like, yeah. almost racist, you know. We don't yeah. use Def Jam acts. Oh, I'm like, you know, I, I mean, that's not my, uh, you know, I could do any club. But, I, I kind of did everything I could do on that. And, and things were starting to happen mainstream. I think yeah, after I yeah. Aspen, I started, whatever, you know, the festivals. And and I had a lot of heat in New York when I first got there because I was already doing comedy for 15 years before I came to New York. Well, I want to, that's a good segue. I want to talk about the relationship between New Jersey and New York because you mentioned one-nighters. And this is a thing that Jersey kind of has going for it when you're coming up in Jersey, because there's so many clubs. New York comics really love that you can jump on a train, get out to some of these spots, do your act, get paid well, and then go sleep in your own bed back in Manhattan or Brooklyn. So there's always been this, there's this weird mix in Jersey, right? You got the one-nighters where the New Yorkers come out, and that's a chance for some of the Jersey comics to maybe mix and build some connections when they start going over the river. Yeah. But then you've got the Jersey rooms where the city people are never going to go. And you've also got Jersey comics where it's, I've talked about this with like Greg Stone and Anthony DeVito, who I feel like are part of the same lineage that you're talking about, where it's like, there's also Jersey comics who seem to exist in a world where it doesn't even occur to them that they can go to New York at some point. That's not a goal or a priority. They just want to play these Jersey rooms. And you start to see, there's a, another phenomenon in Jersey comedy, which I, I feel like happens everywhere, but you start to notice it where you go, there's a lot of blank the blank comics in Jersey. Jake the electrician and his all act is that he's pretending to be an electrician. 
Bob, the, Bob the cop who only does cop jokes and wears a police uniform. And you start to, there's such a weird mix that I want you to speak to of like that relationship of rascals, right? Like Seinfeld would come out in his prime, but then there's rooms a town away where it's this weird mix of sad Jersey comics who are never going across a river. You couldn't pay them to go across a river. I want you to talk about that mix in culture. Well, it's funny because they call me Rich, uh, the speech impediment comic, uh, <laughs> Jew bag. Uh, it's funny. Because, well, in life, there's people that live in Jersey. You go to South Jersey, North Jersey. You think you're in fucking Alabama. I'm yeah. talking North, North Warren County, Sussex County, yeah. you know, and there's people I've met people that live in Jersey and never even been to New York, just regular people. New York's the biggest city. People fly in from other countries to go to New York. All right, people. Oh, I'm not going to New York. You live in fucking Jersey. You can see oh, the skyline from your town, and you've yeah. never been there. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. And we, you know, the, our crew that came into New York, I, I started doing New York at an arc, you know, me, Norton, Florentine, right? I would go into New York, like in the early days before I worked Danger Fields. I would go in because this guy used to host Hiram Caston, where he used to do all this Jackie Gleason shit. It was very, really catskilly, but I let, you know, we got along. And I did Coke and I would bring Coke and give him Coke and they would put me on. He would put me on Danger Fields, right? <laughs> That's what it took for a Jersey comic to get stage time in New York. Well, to get any comic at Danger <laughs> Then. I passed an audition at Catch a Rising Star and the Improv. This is before all the Carolines and the Cellar got big. Catch and the Improv. That was it. Were, were the clubs. And I, I, I don't know how long I was doing comedy, maybe four years or whatever, but I passed at Catch. And the guy who booked it at the time. I think it was Lewis that ended up going to catch. He started off as a bartender than the booker. I would get spots at catch, which the best comics in the country were working. I didn't get a late, you know, uh, then, and that was before I was married. Then I got married. I had kids and I started doing one nighters or whatever I could get booked. New York wasn't paying enough money for me. Yeah to pay my mortgage and, and, and raise kids. So I would do Jersey rooms and there was a lot of Jersey comics that were not, and there was also too, there's a lot of Long Island comics that weren't going into the city either. They have their own, that brokerage circuit yeah. out there. They had everything out in Long Island back then, the orphanage, uh, governors back then, broke, you know, just different rooms, top of the town, which I would do those rooms too in Long Island. Chuckles that closed. Uh, so there was I, like New Jersey guys, you know, Mike, well, no, Mike Egan worked New York, Billy Garen, uh, Max worked New York, but there was a lot of comics that were really good headliners that would either work Jersey or go on the road, you know, that worked for Jerry Stanley and Gary Grant, and, uh, that weren't city comics. I myself got along with City Comics because when I first started comedy, I booked some one-nighters in Jersey. 
you know, I booked this one night or that. I mean, I gave, you know, uh, Joe Bolster did, Dennis Wolfberg, you know, I did. I One night I booked this, uh, uh, what's his name, John Mulroney. These were big, big headliners. And this comic, John Mulroney brought his, uh, an opener. And the comic, the opener said to me, uh, you know, I work Catch a Rising Star, you know, real. I go, well, you're making 60 bucks here in Jersey tonight, right? I go, and it was Richard Jenny. Oh, wow. Who was opening from uh, Mulrooney. So I booked this room. I booked a couple rooms. And a lot of guys starting out, other comics, New York, Connecticut, would book rooms that were con- And uh, we would trade. I go, well, you could host my room if I could host your room. So I, I would get work that way, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then I would meet New York comics because I would bring them out, Long Island comics. Uh, and, 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 and some were nice and I became friends with them. I remember, I remember one night going into New York, I'm, uh, I'm going through my divorce. I'm so depressed. I want to, like, I wasn't, I don't know. It just, it was, I knew I wouldn't be living with my kids anymore. And I was just so depressed and I don't know why I was in New York. I parked my car and I walked into the cellar. I never, I was not a cellar act. I, I, I walked in. I don't know how long I stayed. And as I'm walking back to my car, I see it on a tow truck being towed oh, away. Shit. And I was so fucking depressed. And I I, re, uh, I remember I didn't even have money to get my car out. Tom Caltabiano, who was good friends with Ray and became a writer on Ray's show or producer, he lent me money to get my car out of. So in New York... I already knew comics uh, and I, I, I passed a catch years before it or the improv. And then me, Norton, Florentine, uh, I worked Caroline's first. I got into Caroline's and Caroline's was the club back then. I mean, Caroline. And if you were working Caroline's, you could work pretty much anywhere. And Carol, Carol, Caroline's, Lewis loved me. At one time, they managed me. They had a management company. You know, it all built. I was opening up for doing the, the urban shows there, opening up for Paul Mooney, who was fucking amazing. Yeah. He would come on stage and go, damn, that white boy, you got to stab him and shoot him. Because I didn't have no fear with this audience. So I would open for Paul and then, you know, work my way to headlining Caroline's. But once I got into Caroline's, then Norton and Florentine came in and we started working you know stand up new york the comic and the new york comics hated us kind of hated us because we were the, like jersey trash coming in you know fucking banging broads and you know i was single whatever and we were just you know the jersey fucking trash you know <laughs> they liked us but they hate you know what i mean they go look at these fucking tra-. but we were the jersey comics that came into new york and made it work for us and like you say, there were Jersey comics that had no, no incentive or inclination of coming and working at, at Boston Comedy Club, Caroline's, or the yeah. you know. And uh, it's, 
it's it's weird because the same with Long Island. There were acts on Long Island that were just killer at you know Bob Nelson, Rob Bartlett, uh, you know, and just major L, uh, Long Island acts. And a lot of them didn't come into New York because there was no money. So comics from New York, from Long Island, Jersey are going. Fuck, am I going to go there for twenty dollars when I could work for a hundred here? Right. You know what I mean. So uh, it uh, it just, but then it exploded. You know, the cellar and our crew, and you know, at the cellar we would our table at the cellar is legendary. I mean, we'd sit back there. People were scared to come back. With you know, myself, Norton, Patrice, Keith. You know. Then Kevin Hart came up and we, he ended up sitting with us, you know, and we were just brutal. Just brutal. Oh, believe me. When I got past there, I was scared <laughs> because of the standard you guys set. And then I was quickly told, oh, it's not, it's not like that anymore. And I'll also say this. You guys have this legendary reputation for being these hard asses, but that's by and large with each other. Like I'll see you and yeah. Bobby Kelly start going at each other. And yeah. I'm like, holy shit. But, and, or like Keith to this day, you know, like you guys will clown on each other. But the comics table at the cellar is by and large one of the great bastions of creativity you're going to find in New York City to this day. And this legend that you guys are all mean to everybody who comes up after you is not true. Like you guys, there, there's, there's, I would actually say there's a little bit of a problem where there's guys who emulate the stories they've heard about all of you, but they haven't actually observed it. Yeah. And they're just mean for mean's sake. And I go, Oh no, it's you're the crew you're talking about certainly has that reputation, but it's with each yeah. other. You're not assholes to the rest of us. You're relentlessly cruel to each other for our amusement in yeah. front of us, but you're very nice. Otherwise. <laughs> yeah. At time, you're right. At times. Yeah. It depends how many, I mean, how far you go back with Patrice or Bobby or, I mean, we one night we killed Bill Burr. Bill came in uh, and he, he was going, uh, it was the Mets for Yankees in the World Series. And Billy came in and this, the, the, the cellar was set up different. The bar went around to uh, up and to the right to where the table was. Mm -hmm. so he was sitting at the bar looking down at the table, which was right there, how that used to be set up. The back chairs of the table, you know, where the people plug their phones in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the bar came to there. So Billy came in all smug, sat down at the corner, goes, I'm going to the World Series. You know, the Mets said, wow. We're all like, whoa, how'd you do that? He goes, these guys uh, rented a bus. And they said, if I do a show on the bus, they're going to give me a ticket. So I'm doing the show on their bus on the way to the World Series. And when he said he was doing a show on the bus, <laughs> our eyes fucking lit up. I mean, our eyes, like we would do a bit like this. We'd go, we'd go you guys were great. <laughs> <laughs> and for anybody listening, you are walking down bus steps. Yeah, I think that was Patrice did that one. Yeah. And we beat Billy. I mean, sweat was pouring down Billy's face. I'm telling you. And he canceled the gig. He didn't do it. He didn't go to the World Series because you guys clowned on him so hard? 
We can, you can't do comedy on a bus. You made him aware of what the fuck he was doing. <laughs> they, uh, Joe Matarese, he wanted to fight everybody at the table because I don't know, he had this horrible haircut. You know, I came here one time, I had a like a little fever sore. Yeah. Kevin Hart are all banging on the table and they're yelling, Voss has herpes. The whole place could hear. Yeah. With Kevin and Vitrice. Uh, Keith, the meanest man alive next to Vitrice. Eddie If walked in and I'm sitting there and Eddie's all arrogant. And I told the story a million times. And Eddie said to me, uh, uh, I do colleges. How much do you make? Like just some, I'm like, yeah, what? yeah. And Patrice called him Eddie. Ugh. <laughs> and he goes, you do. Uh, uh, Patrice calls P U college P university. Cause you stink. P -U, right? <laughs> well, Patrice beat Eddie down for probably 45 minutes for you. Little rich motherfucker, which I'm friends with Eddie. Me and no, I was driving home. No one said another word. Once Patrice <laughs> going and go. I was driving home laughing. I called Norton. He was driving back there. I go, I can't stop laughing. This is the most legendary fucking beatdown I've ever seen in my life. Uh, so it was brutal. And it even, it, it, it obviously faded away. Patrice died. The table broke. I do remember one night we're sitting there. And this is after the table, but it's still a little history, a little, you know, I think once me and Keith or whatever, if we were still there or Bob, so Russell Peters walks in with his entourage and Russell's probably the nicest guy in comedy. You can't be nicer. And he walks in and he has his pea coat, you know, a pea coat. Yeah. Yeah. But it's cut off at the waist. <laughs> it's and we look at this coat and we just, fucking started attacking Ron. Bonnie, Bonnie, my wife goes, Bonnie goes, you look like the little boy on Boardwalk Empire. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we fucking just, Russell, like his crew couldn't laugh because they'd get fun. Anyhow, Russell came back in the next night ready and he started hammering, like he, he went prepared. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Just the nicest guy. We, you know. Uh, so the table was, and that's, you know, we after many nights from Jersey in New York were accepted as New York comics now, you know, especially Norton. He ended up, you know, we did radio, Opie and Anthony and Norton got booked. I, you know, I brought Patrice into Opie and Anthony. I brought him in. And the, the second we got in there, he fucking started trashing me. You know, <laughs> I just brought him there. Uh, one night, one day on Opie and Anthony, uh, Patrice, I mean, fucking smash me he said oh looky you fucking selfish fuck because i had a porsche and you know he had this big like escalade he's calling me selfish i'm going you fucking i didn't say this i'm thinking i'm i'm selfish you're driving an escalade that eats gas this and that because you're eating fucking pound cakes every night and you can't <laughs> fit in a porsche go but i didn't see that he just beat me down so bad three days later i text him or something the price of a new Porsche <laughs> compared to the price of his car new, right? And I text him, I go, he calls me laughing, right? 
<laughs> You're still thinking about this? <laughs> he goes, what's wrong with you? Uh, you know, so, you know, we became New York comics. Yeah. Like to a lot of us, as a guy who started after you, Proto, to you and Norton, to me, I'm like, those are like New York club comics. Those were like the New York club comics when I was coming up. Yeah. It, well, we worked everywhere. Stand, I remember when stand up, I just did a show for stand up New York in uh, Miami, the chosen show to like 2,500 Orthodox, Hasidic, and Jew. it was great. A lot of fun. New York, uh, stand up New York promotes it. And stuff, yeah. and, but I would work there. I mean, the line upstairs were like, Mattel, Patrice, uh, Mark Marin, me, Judy Gold. I mean, just fucking a list of headliners on a Tuesday. I got, at, at Stand Up New York, I got the Rosie O'Donnell show. They've only used three comics on Rosie. I was one of them. You know, I was doing from Def Jam, BET, the Apollo. I did The View three times. I did Rosie. Easy. I did stand. I did Rosie O'Donnell stand up on Rosie, you know, the view fucking Barbara Walters. I was on the view the day after Barbara Walters interviewed Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> I was on the view the next, that was the highest viewership it ever had. Cause they wanted to hear what Barbara had to say about Monica Lewinsky interview. So I did Joy's comedy corner and you know, I had to, I, I, I went long too. <laughs> I was going fucking great. Barbara loved me, you know, and I, uh, Meredith, I saw her laughing. I did the view three times, twice a stand and one as a and Rosie. So, you know, I, I would do fucking Def Jam, host Woodstock 99. Next thing you know, I'm on the fucking Rosie O'Donnell show. That to me, I, and it's, I don't want to be two on the nose on my end of things, but I'm like, there is something about that that strikes me as that is a New Jersey attitude. And that's a Jersey comic attitude of like, put me anywhere. I don't care. Put me the Apollo or the view. I'll make both work. Just give me the shot. Like there's a, you know, there is that classic chip on the shoulder of like, no one believes in us. So we better go out there and fucking do it. And I feel like, you know, you've told you you're from Plainfield and like, I feel like there's got to be a side of it that ties in that there's not too many people that can make both of those things work. There's not too many people that have a story about crushing at the Apollo and on the view. There's just <laughs> not that many. You might be the only one. Thank you. I, I don't know. It's just, you know what, to me, comedy, to me, and I love all, like I said, all types of comedy. I love Mulaney. I love, you know, uh, whoever, you know, Ernie Mac, you know, all comedy. Uh, but to me, my opinion, a, a, a good comic, anybody can go up and recite and do their act, but a good comic has lived life, has experienced to me, marriage, divorce, kids, growing up in a, in a certain neighborhood, you know, uh, you know, just life experiences, you know, and for me, you know, I, I've done it all. Drug addict, recovery, marriage, divorce, kids, uh, growing up in, 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 a, in a black neighborhood, you know, so it's just, it's, 
to me bringing your life to the stage and your opinions and your views on things. And the more personal you are, the more original you are. You know, when you're telling a story about your kids or, or buying crack in Harlem or doing whatever, it's you. People cannot steal you. People, comics can do other, take a joke or a bit, but they cannot take you and your persona yeah. ever. So you're who you are, you know? And like I said, there's comics, you know, there's, there's podcasters that do comedy and there's comics that do podcasts. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't, you're going to go on stage and, and, and do well because you're a comic first. And then you do a podcast too. You see what I'm saying? But there's yeah. podcasters that turned it into, you know, uh, uh, you know, whatever. So a good comic to me is, is to me, I don't know. Look, look, there's great comics that just do their act. A great, a good comic to me, for me, can be any, but no, not, not a good one. Ones I like, or I like to watch can do an audible like that. If they yeah. Are. Yeah. That can deal with, uh, you know, whatever, when it happens. And that comes from experience and being on stage a lot and knowing life and knowing people. And I feel like with a guy like you, one of the things I admire is it's not even necessarily reacting to something. It's not necessarily that someone has to say or do something for you to adjust. I feel like you're one of those guys who's been to every corner of the comedy scene through multiple generations where there's things that you can walk out on a stage and sense the makeup of that room and how you need to approach your material, whether it's switching the order, whether it's the level of aggression, whether it's the amount of crowd work, there's things that you're going to inherently realize and know just based on who's sitting there eating mozzarella sticks and looking up at you that night there's certain things you start to learn or inherently sense as a comic, the longer you do it. And I think that's, that's the reason why I'm always so impressed by your stories and the stories of you can do the peppermint lounge in East orange and you can charm, you know, and a a 400 person East orange room in the late eighties, early nineties, you can go up to Denville with the bikers and they'll want to kill you, but you can make them laugh too you do that enough and you start to just walk out and go, Oh, before I even say anything. And before they even do anything, I get a sense of who these people are. And that to me is the skill that the comics I most admire have. That's the stuff that I've only attained on my abs at my absolute best in 22 years of doing it. Uh Um, But where the people like you, let alone, you know, somebody like Colin Quinn, where you watch him and you go, Oh, I've, you can walk onto any stage and you kind of know who you're dealing with. And I don't know how you know, but you know, and, and you can start speaking to them and with them before you even get a sense of what that dialogue is. That That's a real skill. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, it just, yeah, I guess, yeah, it's just the time I've put in and, and, you know, uh, I was doing a, another Keenan Ivory, when Keenan Ivory Waynes had a TV show, I, they booked me on it, right? And I'm in the middle of major anxiety in life. It's like when I was in Aspen, I had all this heat. It's the first festival I had. People should know too, Aspen was, for many years, 
the pinnacle of what you wanted to get is if you could go, go get booked at the Aspen festival, just getting booked at it was yeah. a good thing for your career. Doing well at it might get you a sitcom like that. It was that type of thing. Well, I was at Aspen. I got booked and I have, there's three of us that have all this, have a lot of heat up there. Tony Woods, Billy Gardell and myself for some reason. And I'm up there. My manager at the time, get on stage and show them your sitcom. You know, that's how they wanted you to do comedy. Right. Like Tim Allen or right. Roseanne. And I walk on stage. My first show, someone in the audience looked like Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I don't know if you're Steven Spielberg or not, but I'll blow you just in case or whatever. <laughs> and forget the fucking sitcom. I'm fucking killing an Aspen, right? People are kind of headed Disney. I love you. I don't know what to do with you, but I love you. I mean, I never had this P industry every, I mean, and I have fucking anxiety. I'm going to make this quick. I have anxiety. So I go skiing one day on the biggest mountain with a ski team, you know, Tom Cotter and his wife, Carrie Louise are fucking like, you know, Olympic skiers. They come, come skiing with us. And I'm on the biggest mountain halfway down the mountain. I go, I can't do this. And, the, and the, the, ski patrol had to come take me down <laughs> and everything. Right. So I got all this fucking anxiety killing. I couldn't, I thought I was going to die on the mountain. I get a call that day. We want you to go on at the Wheeler opera house. It's the big between Sinbad and Carlin as they break down the sets Jesus Christ. between them. Right. And next thing you know, I'm up there to, I'm having, I didn't know it was an anxiety attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. You know, next thing you know, the rescue squad's there. Um, Carlin looks at me and goes, don't worry, I had two of them already. Right? <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> next thing you, know, you know, they're bringing me down a stretcher. John Stewart is staring at me. Next thing you know, I'm in the hospital. And it's just anxiety. But I didn't do that show. I did another show. and I had the worst anxiety in my life. I get back to New York and I still had this heat because I killed <laughs> and I had an audition for, for Fox, the head of Fox. And I go to my agent at the time. I go, I can't do this. One, I stink. I'm not an actor back then. I barely am now. I could do whatever. If I can ad live the scene, I'll do it. But I'm not a fight. They go, you have this audition for me. I go, I can't do it. Right? She goes, you'll be fine. So, I mean, I'm having so I'm reading the head of casting at Fox and you can see the sides of my hand. They're shaking. <laughs> so bad. The head of casting at Fox calls my manager and goes, we can never see him again. <laughs> oh, no, that's as poorly as that can turn out. Well, I don't give a fuck. I'm a comic. <laughs> I was a comic. I didn't care. You know, it's, it's like too, when people go, well, you don't act yet because I'm a comic. You don't go to a fucking brain surgeon. You don't do root canal. <laughs> so I don't know how the story, I, I always go off on tangents from the shit that happens, but, uh, you know, Aspen and I never got respect from Montreal. Never respect from them. That's and, the big one now. That was kind of, Concurrent with Aspen, but even more so after Aspen went away, just yeah. for last, became the big one. Yeah, it became. Barry Katz made a big one. He did his uh, new talent 
show. Yeah. Brought up new faces. Yeah, all that, yeah, yeah, new faces. And I, I did Montreal time at times, but not yeah. a lot back from that festival. Uh, you know, but now, you know, we've done Moon Tower and South by Southwest, and every year we do Skankfest, which is fucking blowing up this festival. Skank yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I don't know. I, you know, you feel like. Like, my wife's career is on fire now. Bonnie's career. Yeah. Like, I mean, she's directing, writing, and producing a $12 million budget movie. You know, a remake of a Christmas movie. And, you know, she had a TV show in Canada that they're making based on her life growing. I mean, she has, every night I got to hear about another deal. And I'm fighting to fucking get into a funny bone. Uh, <laughs> I emailed this club. Like, I had an agent for two months, fucking useless. Personal appearance agent, useless. So, I, you know, I get my own club work. I have relationships with a lot still. Uh, one club, I emailed, and they said to me, we can give you an off night, right? Uh -huh. I go, I work the cellar and the comedy store, right? So I could practice for clubs like yours on off nights. Uh -huh. <laughs> on, off uh -huh. nights on off nights, I worked the cellar or the comedy store so I could practice for clubs like yours. All right. I worked at mate, two biggest clubs in the fucking country, and you're going to tell me, oh, we'll, we'll give you a, a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Yeah. Or but I'm booked till June now. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, I'm booked till June. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I get to this business. Young guys come up, you know, and, you know, some are really funny. There's some funny fucking comics. Uh, and they're big on social media. And, and, and you know, it's a whole new era. Our era's gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's gone. Yeah. You know? And you know what it is? And, and, uh, I guess my, my analogy, it's like, I'm like Larry Bird going, why am I, why am I not starting? You're fucking retired almost. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're yeah. Like, you, you're riddled with back injuries and your knees don't work anymore. Yeah. But at some point. You know, but I'm not gonna fail on stage. Yeah. Um, I mean the other night I did two shows at the cellar, one in uh the small room and then one downstairs around the corner. Yeah, I didn't kill, I didn't bomb, but it wasn't great. I like the underground, I like the village underground better in the cellar. Yeah, yeah. Village Underground feels more like a road room. That's like a show, and they'll have a band yeah. sometimes, and they'll yeah. they'll put in like uh, some of the hosts they throw in the Village Underground. I, I feel like for anybody who's a comedy fan, if you're thinking to go, if you're a listener of ours, you want to go into the city for a night of comedy, you're not going to go wrong at the cellar. All the comics are great. McDougal Street, that club is a little more intimate. Village Underground is a little bit more like you're going to get fucking the host is going to come out wearing a suit and sing some songs and blow your mind. And it's going to feel like a show. If you're taking a date, go to the underground, right? Yeah. I went, yeah. I mean, I work two clubs in the city, really. The under, I, the cellar and the stand. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't work uptown only because I come in from Jersey and I don't want to, I come through the hall and I don't want to drive up fucking town. I want to stay yeah. there, You know, I love stand up New York, but it's on 78th Street. That's a big ask. That's a big ask. Yeah. I mean, I like Gotham. If, you know, every now and then I'll do like comedy juice or whatever at Gotham. I used to headline Gotham 
in in the summers, but I don't know if they're they're not using too many headliner shows now. Uh, and and the guys that run that club, uh, the Mazzillis are the nicest, greatest guys on the planet. Nicest guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I, I I look back and everything. Uh, you know, it's, I hosted Woodstock. I hosted fucking Woodstock. <laughs> You you have nothing but a career to be proud of with all the shit you've done and seen from getting threatened in Denville to be murdered by bikers (laughs) hosting Woodstock. That is as good as it gets. I want to, uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I want to just end on a Jersey note, just because you do like, you'll, you'll drop the name of this place that for you was a part of like these places that for guys like me who started in Jersey, after you and came up or, or stone and devito who we all have our own stories i want to know what are the rooms you remember the bad ones or the good ones that were the iconic jersey comedy spots when well, you were coming up well my dream coming up when i first I was to work the penny arcade in clark and turn to casual times it was See, that is just to hear that there was a club in clark that was the brass ring everybody was chasing um, this is news to me that's amazing yes. I, when I first started, I go there and watch, and I saw comics. I go, this is this would be a dream come true. Then I ended up working there. My dream was I, to work Rascals in West Orange, and I started working Rascals. Uh, you know, then my dream was to do something at the Garden State Art Center, which I was on the ONA Virus tour there. So the two. At, in the early days, where the Penny Arcade and Rascals was the club, they had Rascals Comedy Hour on TV, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which I did. I don't know three times. Did I once hear and, a story that Rascals used to try to pay comics in like a fake stock that they invented? That was the new owner. Not the, <laughs> not the, that owner went to jail for a while. Okay. The okay. Original, the original owners, the Magnusons. Ward and John and uh, I don't remember all the were the greatest guys. I mean, the one in Ward ran Ward ran uh, Rascal South. Okay, Ward and, that was down uh, the shore, right? Yeah, he the nicest guy in the plant. His brother ran Rascal's North, who was very intimidating. Just the system, <laughs> probably one of the best clubs in the country at the time. Yeah, you know they. And, you know, he was just very well kept. He liked me, but he was intimidating. You were like, you know. Uh, so those were the clubs. But then, you know, they're gone. And, and, and the new owner somehow stole the club in some stock scam or whatever. And they lost. Whatever. I don't know what it was. Then when they closed. And then the stress factory became. Well, Catch Rising Star in Princeton was a pretty good club too back then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then Stress Factory. I guess the Stress Factory is the club in Jersey. Yeah, but also too, sense. also too, there was Atlantic City, the comedy stop at the Tropicana, the Brigada Con, you know. So uh, I guess South Jersey didn't have, or North Jersey didn't have the main, the big clubs like Central Jersey. Rascals, the Stress Factory, early days, Penny Arcade, which turned into Casual Times, uh, Freddy's, which was the first club. So those were Central Jersey had the main clubs. 
uh, Catch a Rising Star Princeton had the main club. And there was a slew of one-nighters all over the place. Just a slew of them, you know. Uh, so there was times in probably the 80s, early 90s, where you could fucking work every night just doing a jersey room almost. Maybe you would slum it and go to Long Island or Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why if I feel like I pontificated throughout this whole fucking podcast, I, it feels like, oh, look at me. Listen, I just do what I do. I love doing what I do. I hope it didn't sound like I was bragging. I really... I brought you on and I asked you questions about your life. And whenever, whenever we'd get too off track, I'd bring it back to Jersey. That's my job. Don't you worry about that. It's, it's, Sorry, when you grow up in Jersey? What I happened? grew up in West Orange. Oh, you did? So I went to high school right down the block from Rascals. Uh, it's a bank now, right? Yeah. yeah. But you grew up in West Orange. Uh, isn't that a big... That's uh, a Jewish... No, nah, it's West Orange... It's an extraordinarily diverse town. I grew up in a little Irish Catholic pocket that was next to the uh, black neighborhood. Then there was an Italian neighborhood, a Protestant neighborhood, a Jewish neighborhood. But they're all so it's like an extremely diverse town. But where it's when I grew up, it was you'd sort of cross paths with everybody, but then everyone lived in neighborhoods where you'd go, okay, this is by and large a blank neighborhood. But we were all in school together. Uh -huh. um, Rascals was up in the Jewish part of town. Okay. All right. Well, you know, this went by, we did an hour and a half. This yeah. is amazing how quick it went. Uh, it's, it, it's, uh, I could talk to you forever. One night we got to have dinner. Oh, I love it. I mean, one night I bought money said, how can we never had dinner with them? I don't fucking know. There was a pandemic. You know? <laughs> I, have, I have an unvaccinated child and have been living in fear for years. So yeah. whatever you guys want, I know we're not that far apart now. You say the yeah. word, I will be there. I love it. I love every chance I get to talk with you. Just hearing that Freddy's in Bernersville was a big deal back in the day. I go, what in burn? Like the idea that that was a comedy hub for, for people coming up in Jersey and city comics to come out like Bernersville. It's wild. Everybody. When I worked there, I went on last Chris Rock was in the middle. That's nuts. Yeah. I went, I went, oh, I'll tell you another big club before, was the Upper Deck in Lake of Pacon. That was a major club, the Upper Deck. It was, we, you know, I, I closed the show. Ray Romano was in the middle. That's uh, nuts. Lake Ray, of Pacon. You're driving out to fucking Lake of Pacon. Yes, and it was deck. a hot room. It was fucking packed. It was the Upper Deck. That was a dream to work the upper deck and make a pack on. I forgot about that. Uh, yeah. Uh, Are there any Jersey comics that faded away from your, uh, from your era where you're like, can't believe this person didn't make it big. Cause they were like this unheralded. You're talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> after, after an hour and a half of me being like, I love talking to you about your career. You were at the Apollo and now you're going to claim you're the unheralded forgotten guy. No, there was a comic that was great. That did, 14, 12 to 14 Carsons, David Say, who was so funny and great. He ended up Jersey on, guy? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Jersey. Yeah. yeah. And he ended up doing cruise ships and getting old and just, you know, yeah. kind of uh, Uncle Dirty who passed away. Who is Uncle? I know Uncle Floyd. Who's Uncle Dirty? Uncle Dirty used to, he opened up for the who? Uncle Dirty had a gold <laughs> album. 
Uncle Dirty. <laughs> Where was he from? He's from Jersey. Jersey, yeah. He he passed, but yeah, Uncle Dirty was a big fucking. Uh, he opened been all day learning yeah. reading about Uncle Dirty on Wikipedia. Yeah, prior. He was, you know, fr from the prior crew. Prior, a famous story flew him out to L.A. Right, uh, invite him to his house. Uncle Dirty walks in. There's fucking girls all over the place. Coke, they're doing coke, and you know, just uh, it, it's like uh, you know the Playboy Mansion only with Pryor's. You know, and Uncle Dirty walks in, and Pryor goes, "See this? You could have had this all." I get the playing, then kick him out or something. Some famous story, but See he that, was. I I, I am since his name came up. I have long been fast. Uncle Floyd. There's no one else like him in the entire world. You must have crossed paths with him hundreds of times. I don't think I ever did. I mean, I remember him. He was on NBC for like a week or two after yeah. us. After us, yeah. Uncle Floyd. I don't think I. Oh, he's just, I, he's just I been doing like firehouse shows and VFW yeah. halls in Jersey for decades, and nobody ever really crosses paths with him in the rest of comedy. I did. I did one uh, radio once with him. Was on the show, Big Pussy from uh, Soprano. <laughs> all these Italian guys. There was some radio show at Sirius. Like they all thought they were gangsters. Shut up, your characters. Uh, <sighs> Uncle Floyd. The reason we don't cross paths because he closes his shows. Yeah, know? I'm not going to middle for Uncle Floyd. Uh, but yeah, Uncle Floyd was, he's a New Jersey, uh, like, superstar in New Jersey. Just only in North Jersey, playing <laughs> piano, singing his songs, doing his Italian bits. A puppet. He had a little Still puppet. does it. Still does so many shows every year. I yes. can't get this guy to come on this podcast. He will not talk to me. He just wants to do his own thing. He wants nothing to do with the rest of the comedy. Really? That's hilarious. Fascinating guy. Okay. All right, Rich. All right. Well, listen. This uh, is the best. Let's please hang out. Send my love to Bonnie. Yeah. And uh, let's Thank please, let's get dinner in a, a place where we don't have to worry about 19 other comics trying to do bits. Let's do it. In yeah, I'll do that. I'll go, we'll go out to dinner when I, there's so many great places around. Oh, All right. I'm going to go run and play my lottery tickets. Uh, That's the best. What a great note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the World is Chris Gethard, Nikki Bonaduce, Don Finelli, Andrea Quinn, Carson Kopp, and Mike D. New Jersey is the World is produced and edited by Carson Kopp, Mike D, and Andrea Quinn. You can find us online at New Jersey is the World and on Instagram at New Jersey is the World. Also, please feel free to reach out and leave us a voicemail by contacting the home office of New Jersey's The World at 973-780-4660 in regards to anything show or New Jersey related. Please subscribe and listen to more episodes of New Jersey is The World on your favorite podcast service. If you're looking to join our extremely opinionated and Jersey-ish community, head on over to Patreon.com and search for New Jersey is the World. We have merch, which you can find at BelowTheCollar.com after searching for Chris Gethard. Once again, thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the World.